Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It For was the day. best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, with me in the studio today is my producer, Mr. Dan Arnfeld. Good afternoon, Dan. Hello. It's so good to have him back. I would be in a horrible mess if I didn't have a producer. <laughs> I'm just not that that qualified with electronics, so I might be able to talk well, but that's about it. Well, I have one comment, and it's really kind of a funny one. And uh, one listener who knew I was in Jerusalem was ecstatic that my wife and I made it back from Jerusalem. And I said, well, how did you know we made it back? She said, well, we knew that because we listened to your last program. And she said, I said, you listened to the last program. I said, oh, did you know I taped that before I left? (laughs) She says, no, I didn't know that. And I said, but we are back safe, you know. So so uh, anyway, I thought that was really, really kind of fun. I really, after all the hassle we've been through after getting back from from uh, Israel, it's um, it's really kind of, kind of funny to be funny, you know. So, so, but anyway, now on our last program, which we taped before the feast, <laughs> uh, I finished chapter 8 and I began chapter 9 titled, Bangalore or Bangalore. I always want to say Bangalore. I don't know why, but it is Bangalore. I'm going to put that in big letters for myself. So, so what I want to do today is I want to continue chapter nine. And so what I'd like to do is do a little bit of re- a review. And uh, uh, we're just going to start on page 109 today. And again, th- th- this is a, a really good chapter. And it's to me, it's a fascinating chapter. And I do think, uh, for all you parents out there, I know there's a lot of emphasis on uh, we have here at the college and at the high school of making sure that parents get involved with uh, their young people's education. And I really think this podcast would be a worthwhile effort for your high school or college student to listen in along with you. And it, th- this is this is a, a, a striking chapter in the book, and I know I taught this at uh, in the sophomore English class a couple of years ago, and in some ways I'm cheating because I still have all my notes written in my book, so so I can pretty much go through this, and then actually my brain is actually working again, <laughs> you know, even after the 14-hour air flight from from uh, Athens to uh, to uh, uh, Atlanta, and uh, we were on the plane with the crazy Greeks. They're called the Cretans. And uh, they're a tough bunch, though. You don't mess around. You better have your seatbelt on or you're out. I mean, they're going to kick you off the plane. So, uh, but anyway, they really did treat us pretty well. But anyway, I really do think that, uh, and I do instruct my students this way, is that essentially truly educated people are self-educated. And that's why I, I tell the students. And, we, you know, we have... Uh, you know, students in, in the uh, sophomore, this is college, 
And, you know, I make a reading, we make a reading schedule for them. We tell them what chapters to read. We tell them how to do this, how to do that. We usually review for exams. And I tell them, I said, my job is to come in here and give you the best lecture I can. That's my responsibility. But it's your job to read and to, well, study. And I said, if you don't do the reading and you don't do the study, and you get a failing grade, it's not my fault. It's your fault because you have to want to be be self-educated. And so, so uh, here's how this chapter opens again. This is page 109. And uh, the, one of the things we have to realize that, that it's, uh, I'll just start reading this. It said, it was not until the winter of 1896 when I had almost completed my 22nd year that the desire for learning came upon me. So, so here he's, he's on his way to being 23 now. And, uh, you know, some of our students, I mean, we, we have older students as well as younger students. Some of our students here are 23. And so, so uh, uh, if, if you look at it, it's interesting that, um, you know, Winston is, he's really accomplished a lot. I mean, he's, he's uh, become a soldier. He's, he's now in India. Uh, he's getting ready to be to be 23, and he says, "I began to feel myself wanting in the in even the vaguest knowledge about many large spheres of thought." And it, what he's saying is that he really began to believe that he wasn't educated. Now he was at Sandhurst, so he was educated on how to ride a horse. And even though, if you remember back then, he was falling off horses all the time. But he he learned how to you know to ride a horse. He learned how to to ride in form, and uh, he goes on to say here says I had picked up a wide vocabulary and had a liking for words, and for the feel of words fitting and falling into their places like plenty, pennies in a slot. So now uh, that's a, that's a really a great image, but remember Winston Churchill liked to gamble. <laughs> So he's using words like pennies in the slot. Can you see him? You know, they have all these commercials here in Oklahoma because we have the the Indian tribes have all the casinos and you have people putting coins in the slots and then all of a sudden they win and it's a big exciting thing and it just sucks everybody else into getting, they're going to think they're going to win just as quickly. And it doesn't work out that way. <laughs> so, so, but anyway, he said, um, he, he said, I caught myself using a good many words the meaning of which I could not define precisely. So he heard words and he thought, well, that's a cool word. I'm going to use it. And and then he said, you know what? I began to realize I don't actually know what that word means. And he said, one day before I left England, a friend of mine had said, Christ's gospel was the last word in ethics. And then uh, Winston Churchill goes on to say, and that sounded good, but what were ethics? They had never been mentioned to me at Harrow or Sandhurst. Judging from the context, I thought they must mean the public school spirit, playing the game, esprit de corps, honorable behavior, patriotism, and the like. Then, someone told me that ethics were concerned not merely with the things you ought to do, but with why you ought to do them. And there were whole books written on the subject. And so, so um, you know, he, he, he began to realize... I'm not educated. I don't even know what ethics means. And he, he goes on to say, and, and I think this is a great attitude. Now, he's 23. Remember this. He said, I would have paid some scholar 
two pounds at least to give me a lecture of an hour or an hour and a half about ethics. What was the scope of the subject? What were its main branches? What were the principal questions dealt with? And the chief controversies, who were the right authorities, which were the, sta- uh, which were the standard books? He says, but here in Bangalore, was no one, there was no one to tell me about ethics for love or money. Of, taxi, uh, of tactics, I had a grip. On politics, I had a view. But a concise, compendious outline of ethics was a novelty not to be locally obtained. And so, so uh, you know, he, he's realizing that he's not thinking deeply enough. He, he, there's other spheres of thoughts to think about. And uh, he says he doesn't even understand ethics. He said this was only typical of a dozen similar mental needs that I now began to press insistently upon me. He said, I knew of the course that the youth at the university were stuffed with all this patter at 19 and 20 and could pose you in trapping questions or giving baffling answers. So, so the word patter there is, is really kind of interesting. You have to look it up. It's not, it's not necessarily something you're going to just use. But you can show he's being a little bit sarcastic here with his, you know, the universities. We all know that he didn't like the university guys. He said they were full of patter. And what patter means is continuous and sometimes funny speech or talk, especially used by someone who wants to sell something to you. So, so essentially he's saying, oh yeah, all these university guys, they were just stuffed with all this patter they're trying to sell me on you know, what education they got and the education I didn't get. Uh, he said, we never so much store by them or their affected superiority, remembering that they were only at their books while we were commanding men and guarding the empire. And so, <laughs> so you can see, uh, I, I could see in, in my mind, as you know, I'm talking about this, I could see a group of these educated bookies and then all the soldiers and seeing them just clash with each other. <laughs> You say, okay, yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're guarding the empire. You got your books. But he goes on to say that, nevertheless, I had sometimes resented the apt and copious information which some of them seemed to possess. And he said, and now I wished I could find a competent teacher whom I could listen to and cross-examine for an hour or so every day. And so, so you can see that, Shakespeare, not Shakespeare, uh, he, he also loved reading Shakespeare, by the way, but uh, um, what, what Churchill came to understanding is that, that he had to do something. He had to, he had to really, you know, uh, get it together, and for, for the first time in his life, he realized that the desire for learning came upon him. It was the desire for learning. He, he didn't really, I mean, he wanted to be in the military, that's for sure. So uh, he, he goes on to say, he starts to talk about, you know, uh, now, now he's saying he wanted a teacher. But then he starts to list for us what are the things that he was thinking about. And so he already mentioned the word ethics. He didn't know what that meant. But then here in the, in the middle of page 110, he says, then someone had used the phrase, the Socratic method. What was that? <laughs> he didn't know, what is, what is that about? And, and again, I, I never got into uh, to a lot of those things either. Uh, I went to a really good college, but um, I, you know, I was more into the, to the literature and the art end of it all. 
In fact, for at one point, I was an art student and uh, uh, for probably a semester. And then I realized that those guys were really weird artists. They're just not really right. And uh, I wanted to do something like perfect. And they were drawing like weird things, like weird tennis shoes, you know, and stuff like that. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to stay back with literature. And uh, he said, what was that? The Socratic method. He said, it was apparently a way of giving your friend his head in an argument and progging him into a pit by punning, punning questions. <laughs> so so if, if you look up those words, it, I mean, they, they really, you can tell um, that, that Winston Churchill, is just, he really did love words. And, and here he's writing, he used the word progging. And uh, I thought, man. What a crazy word that is. And, and progging, what it means is to prowl about for or as if for food or plunder. So, so what he's saying is, uh, you know, the Socratic method is, is you're progging people and uh, you want to plunder them. You know, you want to beat their heads in with, with the Socratic method. And uh, he says, he goes on to say, well, who is Socrates anyhow? And so, so you can see now he's, he's older when he's writing this. I mean, he's, he's far into his senior years, but he's using the word progging. But then he said, uh, who was Socrates anyway? And now this is really funny, but he said, uh, he says a very argumentative Greek who had a nagging wife and was finally compelled to commit suicide because he was a nuisance. <laughs> and so, so that's not, that's not quite the history, but it is, it is kind of funny. Still, he was beyond doubt a considerable person. He counted for a lot in the minds of learned people. I wanted the, so the Socrates story. Why had his fame lasted all through the ages? What were the stresses which had led a government to put him to death merely because of the things he said? Dire stresses they must have been, the life of Athenian executive or the life of this talkative professor. Such antagonisms do not spring from petty issues. Evidently, Socrates had something into being long ago which was very explosive. An intellectual dynamite, a moral bomb, but there was nothing about it in the Queen's regulations, he said, he had studied the Queen's regulations, but there was no intellectual dynamite in that. <laughs> there was no moral bomb in it. And he's beginning to think, you know, am I really educated? Am I really educated enough? And he goes on to say, then, then there was history. I had always liked history at school, but there we were. We were given only the dullest, driest Pemmican said forms like the students Hume. Now that that word pemmicanist, and it means like pressed into a can. It's like dog food that's pressed into a can. <laughs> that's pemmicanist forms like the students Hume. And of course, the students Hume was history by David Hume. And he said once I had a hundred pages of the students Hume as a holiday task. And this is what his dad did to him. He wanted him to read this. This uh, it's, it's a student's history of England is what it is. And uh, he said, quite unexpectedly, before I went back to school, my father set out to examine me upon it. 
He said the period was Charles I. He asked me about the Grand Remonstrance, or Remonstrance, which did I know about that? I said in the end the Parliament beat the king and cut his head off. And so the Grand Remonstrance was, you know, Parliament, you know, Charles I was not the best king. And he made a lot of mistakes. And uh, the, the, uh, the uh, Parliament, they created the Grand Remonstrance to show him where he was wrong. And they wanted him to change. And uh, he didn't change. So guess what? They cut off his head. <laughs> you know, they executed him. And, uh, uh, you know, his dad was not happy with the way he responded to that. Yeah, yeah. The parliament picked on him, they beat him, and they cut his head off. And he goes on to say, This seemed to me the grandest remonstrance imaginable. It was no good. Here, said my father, is a grave parliamentary question affecting the whole structure of our constitutional history. Lying near the center of the task you have been set, and you do not in the slightest degree appreciate the issues involved. And so his dad slapped him pretty hard. And he wanted to imitate his dad. And he did come from a long line of, uh, you know, really good monarchs. Well, I should say monarchs. I guess, uh, you know, his uh, great-grandfather was the Duke of Marlborough. And so, uh, uh, you know, he, he was uh, not really living up to that standard yet. He said, I was puzzled by his concern. I could not see at the time why it should matter so much. Now I wanted to know more about it. So, he goes on to say, now I remember now, this is, this is uh, him deciding he really wanted to be educated. And so, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that Churchill would go after it with everything he had. And that's what he did. And that's, that's really what we all need to do. I know when I read this over and over again, I thought, you know what? I need to study more history as well. You know, when we were in Israel, we got to see all these historic sites. We went to Megiddo. We went to uh, uh, Masada. And, you know, there's there's a whole story behind Masada. And it was Herod that actually built that place. And then the Jews revolted against the, the Romans. And... Um, you know, they knew the Romans were closing in, and so they, instead of letting their children be subject to slavery, they all committed suicide. And it's as I was walking around all of that, it's just, it just really kind of blows your mind when you're doing that. And then, of course, in Megiddo, that's where the, uh, the Valley of Jezreel is. It's right there, and you can see where there's going to be thousands of army, you know, come into the Megiddo, come, I mean, come into that area. And uh, according to Bible prophecy, Christ is going to smite them all. So it's really going to be interesting. I mean, when you see it, it really becomes real. So, so he said, uh, he goes on to say, So I resolved to read history, philosophy, economics, and things like that. And I wrote to my mother asking for such books as I had heard of on these topics. She responded with alacrity. In other words, she, she really got to it. She really helped him. And uh, she was really, uh, you know, behind him, you know, for as long as she lived. Said, and every month the mail brought me a substantial package of what I thought were standard works. In history, I decided to begin with Gibbon. Someone had told me that my father had read Gibbon with delight and that he knew whole pages of it by heart and that it had greatly affected his style of speech and writing. 
So without more ado, I set out upon the eight volumes of Dean Millions' edition of Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. So, so he went after it. His mom sent him the books. He went right after it. He said, I was immediately dominated both by the story and the style all through the long, glistening middle hours of the Indian day from when we quitted stables till the evening shadows proclaimed the hour of polo, I devoured Gibbon. I rode triumphantly through it from end to end and enjoyed it all. I ascribed my opinions on the margins of the pages and very soon found myself a vehement partisan of the author against the disparagements of his pompous, pious editor. So, so notice that it's, I think it's interesting. He's talking about Gibbon. I have always wanted to read Gibbon. And, uh, you know, I even, uh, at one point, uh, point tried to find a whole set for myself. I found a few of them, but, uh, I'm not Winston Churchill. It fell by the wayside. But notice he says that, that, uh, very soon I found myself a vehement partisan of the author against the disparagements of his pompous. I was even estranged by the naughty footnotes. And he said there, he also makes the line, this is what I'm hunting for. I rode triumphantly through it from end to end and enjoyed it all. So he's comparing reading Gibbons to a polo match in his chuckas. <laughs> he wanted 12 chuckas a day. So, so he was really reading Gibbon. He says, uh, on the other hand, the dean's apologies and disclaimers roused my ire. So, so the, the guy that actually pulled the set, the set together, uh, he, he wrote his own view of what Gibbon was saying. He said, so pleased was I with the decline and fall that I began at once to read Gibbon's autobiography, which luckily was bound up in the same edition. When I read his reference to his old nurse, if there be any, as I, and this is, this is, uh, the, um, the, uh, author that, uh, you know, pulled the, pulled the, the books together for, for the, this is, uh, I guess this, uh, series of it. <clears throat> He said, when I read his reference to his old nurse, if there be any, as I trust there are some, who rejoice that I live to the dear and excellent woman, their gratitude is due. He says, I thought of Mrs. Everest, and it shall be her uh, epitaph. And so so you can see that that he really was really putting himself into this, into to Gibbon. He said, from Gibbon, I went to Macaulay. I had learnt the lays of ancient Rome by heart and loved them, and of course I knew he had written a history. So, so Macaulay does have these great, it's a whole series of poems on ancient Rome. Some of them are very dramatic, some of them are very much about war, and, uh, you know, I think, uh, if you remember all the way back to, to when, uh, Winston was younger, he memorized some of these pa- uh, poems, and they were long, heart by heart. Word by word, he, he, he remembered it all and actually won a prize for doing that. He says, I, I now, uh, he said, I knew he had written a history, but I had never read a page of it. I now embarked on that splendid romance and I, and I voyaged with full sail and a strong wind. So, so notice, I mean, that's, that's very artistic what he's saying. Last time he's saying he wrote it, you know, he wrote through it like a polo match. Now he's saying, I, I was, I was into Macaulay's history like a full sail in a strong wind. I remembered then that, that Mrs. Everest's brother-in-law, the old prison warden, had possessed a copy of Macaulay's history, 
purchased in supplements and bound together, and then he used to speak of it with reverence. I accepted all Macaulay wrote as a gospel, and I was grieved to read his harsh judgments upon the great Duke of Marlborough. And so he said, okay, there's a line I'm going to draw. Macaulay's a great history writer. He's a great guy. But when you go after my great-grandfather, you're in big trouble. <laughs> and so, so he did not like what he said about his grandfather or great-grandfather. There was no one at hand to tell me that this historian with his captivating style and devastating confidence was the prince of literary rogues. <laughs> so now Macaulay is a literary rogue. But, but the thing everybody out there listening is I want you to understand is that, that he still, even though he was educating himself, he still felt he needed a good teacher. And that's really kind of remarkable. He said there was no one there to tell me, well, there's a, you know, there's someone else besides Macaulay that you could really get a lot from. And, and, uh, uh, it, all, all the parents out there, you need to teach your children to respect their teachers. I mean, respect them that can really help them. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of young people, I know we even experienced this at times with our children. They'll tell you, well, the teacher did this to me, the teacher did that to me, and then, you know, you want to go in and, you know, rough up the teacher when really they're dealing with 30 students that are screaming at them. You know, it's hard for teachers. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, Winston Churchill, I think, is, is very humble here, saying he needed a teacher, and he couldn't find one in India. He said, there was no one at hand to tell me that this historian with his captivating style, I read that, excuse me, I, I like the fact that he called him the prince of literary rogues, who always preferred to tell the truth and smirched or glorified great men and garbled documents according as they affected his drama. I cannot forgive him for imposing on my confidence and on the simple faith of my old friend, the warder. Still, I must admit an immense debt upon the other side. So he's saying, look, there's still, there's still something very positive of what happened. He said, not less than in, in his history, I reveled in his essays. He wrote an essay on Chatham, Frederick the Great, Lord Nugget's Memorials of Hampton, Clive, Warren Hastings, Barrer, uh, Southerly's Colloquies on Society, and above all, that masterpiece of literary ferocity, Mr. Robert Montgomery's poems. And so, so again, he didn't just give up on Macaulay. He started to, well, he could handle the essays a lot better. So you know, he spent a lot of time reading. And so, so it, you know, to me, it's really, really quite fascinating what, what he's going through now at 23. And of course, his mom, uh, you know, Jenny was really, really helping him. Now, notice, uh, this is page 112 at the very bottom. And uh, we're actually going to run out of time on this here pretty quickly. So, but it said from November uh, to May, I read four or five hours every day, history and philosophy. And so, so think about it. He's, he's not in a cool country, by the way. <laughs> he's in a very hot country and he is reading, uh, you know, five hours a day. And so, so I think that's very interesting. Well... That's all the time we have for today's program. So on our next program, I want to finish chapter 9 and move on to chapter 10. 
So now you can buy My Early Life at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. I was just searching ABE Books the other day, and I'm still amazed at the, the amazing books they have there for sale and that you can get very good copies very cheap. You may be able to find a copy in your local bookstore, and of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.